Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Cloudy skies. Welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, from K-12 through to institutions of higher learning, how the current pandemic could reform education. We'll discuss disparities rural school districts are facing, and also how Spelman College and Oglethorpe University handled the sudden shift to all online classes and what the campus experience could look like in the fall. I thought I had seen everything. But this crisis is like nothing I have ever seen before. And I think it's challenging everybody in uh, ways that none of us have ever experienced. That conversation coming up in just a moment. But first, as always, the latest information regarding COVID-19 here in Georgia. As of noontime today, there are 25,274 confirmed cases. The number of deaths statewide is reported to be 1,052. And there are 4,948 hospitalized. Again, that's all according to the Georgia Department of Public Health as of noontime today. Stay tuned. There's more Closer Look just ahead. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Today's program will focus on education, K-12, through and higher education. We'll begin with colleges and universities. How has the coronavirus pandemic affected this current academic year? And what about long-term effects? Right now, many institutions of higher learning, they're already grappling with the issue of closing budget gaps. And now comes a pandemic. Well, joining me now to discuss all of this is Dr. Mary Schmidt-Campbell, president of Spelman College, and Dr. Larry Schall, president of Oglethorpe University, for a few months <laughs> longer. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Well, good morning. Thank you. It's great to be here, Rose. Yeah, good to be with you. Let's talk about right now, and if you all could just open up with your reflections on what I've been saying for about a month now, which is that this is an extraordinary time in our nation, in our world. You know, Rose, I've been thinking about this. Before I came to Spelman College, I had a career in New York City for about 40 years, and I've seen a few crises. <laughs> when I came to the city, the city was on the verge of bankruptcy. Um, I was at New York University, which is in lower Manhattan, uh, when September 11th happened. Um, we lived through a fiscal crisis uh, in New York, the 2008 collapse of the markets. Uh, and uh, I thought I had seen everything. But this crisis is like nothing I have ever seen before. And I think it's challenging everybody in uh, ways that none of us have ever experienced. And President Shaw. Yeah, and I would agree. I think, you know, it's different, I think, in a couple ways. So one is it's really unclear about when there will be an end and, and maybe if there will be an end. I think in other, other crises we've had, there, there seemed to be a, a clearer path to, to, to moving on. And I think the other, the other um, thing I would note is that it's, it's happening at a time when our politics are so unhealthy that um, the, the response to this, to this crisis seems less, um, comprehensive and less thoughtful than it has been to others. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to something that President Campbell just said, and she talked about this was a crisis that she had never experienced. I want to shift for a moment before we get into the other conversation and talk about leadership. Was there any takeaway from you all in terms of being leaders doing something like this? And Dr. Campbell, I'll let you go first. I think what Larry said is very true. 
this is the kind of crisis uh, where you don't know where the end is. So I, at first, I was thinking of, the, of this crisis of let's build a bridge over these troubled waters. You know, we, we'll, we'll get through this because you're assuming that at the other end, there's going to be all this will go away and we'll get back to some form of normalcy. Mm -hmm. I think as we have are living through this crisis, I'm beginning to see that this is a moment where we have to begin thinking about reshaping the kinds of educational institutions we have so that they can be more resilient and responsive to a crisis like this that may occur again. Mm -hmm. I mean, we may get through coronavirus, but um, what if yet a new uh, virus emerges somewhere down the road? So, so that's one. That's one thing. The other thing, as as uh, from the point of view uh, of leadership, is that you realize that honestly, that's what our institutions have been doing. All of us, you know, we've all we all none of us looks now the same way we looked at the beginning. I mean, Spelman started in the basement of a, of a church, mm -hmm. right, as a seminary. So we're not the institution now that we were then. So we're, we, we've always been in this place where we've had to reinvent ourselves. And so once you enter into that mindset, then I think um, you can begin to look at this as, a, as an opportunity to do some creative thinking about who you are as a college. President Shaw, leadership during a crisis for you? Yeah, so I, you know, I think the, you know, the people that sit in our positions that, that you know, had, had to make some really difficult decisions very quickly, but um, that's not particularly atypical. What, what's been interesting for me to watch, you know, I think, you know, both Spelman and Oglethorpe, we're, we're, uh, we have a model of education that mm -hmm. depends on faculty you know, sitting face to face across the classroom, the seminar room with with students, and that's you know what we what we both do extraordinarily well. And when it became clear, literally in the you know space of a week to ten days, that that model was not going to work, um, at least for the short term, it was really interesting to see um, our faculty sort of move to a leadership role. Mm -hmm. And particularly, I'd say, um, our younger faculty. I mean, we, we, we don't do online education, so we literally had to convert every course, hundreds and hundreds of courses in the space of a week or 10 days to online. And, and people my age and um, who didn't grow up with this technology find, I'm, I'm just managing to figure out how to join a Zoom meeting, but... Um, <laughs> You know, our, our younger faculty really sort of took the lead, not only taking and putting their courses online, but creating um, opportunities to, um, to teach other people how to do it. And they're still doing that. So it, it's, it was an interesting moment where, in a different moment, where our, our sort of our younger faculty stepped up into a leadership role. It's a really important point that uh, Larry's made, that you know, all of a sudden we've, we've found ourselves in a learning mode, mm -hmm. you know, uh, for, for all the reasons that he just said, and finding that that's actually a pretty exciting place to be. <laughs> but Dr. Campbell, the process of shifting to an all online learning mode, how would you assess you all having to shift to do that? Was it smooth? I would say at the outset, <laughs> when we first came to the realization that uh, we're going to have to make this shift. I will just speak for myself personally, for all the reasons that, that, that Larry said. Given my my error, it looked absolutely daunting. Mm -hmm. uh, but in fact, uh, it immediately became clear that our faculty uh, really rose to the occasion and there was an extraordinary sharing of that same kind of sharing of resources. And I've heard that said on about other campuses, that there was a sharing of those who were um, adept and skillful at the technology, were very willing to help out their peers, their faculty peers. Mm -hmm. uh, we also stood up a week's worth of intensive training sessions. And I have to say, even those who were most skeptical 
about making the transition uh, very often ended up at the end of that uh, time period being real champions. So, so as I, as I said, it, it was a, it was a, it was really revealing to see the way faculty did take leadership, but also the way they embraced the excitement of being able to put some new tools in their um, sort of pedagogical toolbox. Mm -hmm. How has all of this potentially going to impact you on from a financial basis and? President Campbell, I'll stay with you. You and I, we've had conversations about the plight of historically black colleges and universities and small liberal arts colleges, and now comes this pandemic. Um, have you all looked at projections in terms of financial loss to the institution? So, so you know, Sp Spelman starts from a very strong position. You know, balanced budgets, you know, we're building a, we were building an operating reserve, um, uh, you know, strong in endowment performance, not wealthy, but healthy. Mm -hmm. um, so we've spent, uh, we, we've charged our finance uh, division to look at four possible scenarios for the uh, academic continuity of the college. And they are, they are, they are doing that analysis as we speak. Mm. Uh, because with whatever option we choose, we're, as I said, we're thinking this is a bridge over troubled waters. We have to get to the other side. And that means we have to, we have to come up with a financially sustainable model to take us there. We haven't, we haven't completed our analysis yet, but that's going to be a huge challenge. I mean, if we don't have a residential campus, we don't have income from our residence halls. Mm -hmm. And that's a very large number each semester. Uh, there's market volatility. So our endowment will no doubt uh, be hit. And then there's all, you know, our, our, our students gonna wanna come uh, if, if the college is not residential. So, so there are lots of uh, variations, variables uh, that could impact us financially. President Shaw, what about you all? Let's talk about finances. Have you all taken a loss so far? Right. So, you know, I think when you look sort of globally, um, schools that entered this crisis in a sort of healthy place, and, and Oglethorpe's fortunate to be in that, in that place, um, well, in the short run, I think we'll be just fine. I do think there's going to be a, um, there's going to be a fallout that's going to accelerate, I think, the, the risk to, um, sort of financially unstable institutions, and, and there are a bunch of them. Um, so we've looked at this. There's a, um, you know, there's the sort of immediate hit that you took by sending all students home eight weeks before the semester ended and, and refunding, rebating their room and board. You know, for us, that was, that was about a million two that we, we gave back. Um, and we've already done that. Then you've got the summer revenue which you know, we send five or six hundred students abroad in the summer um, so there's probably over a million dollars of revenue lost in the summer some of the federal uh, aid that's now beginning to filter down um, you know, is will help but as i say we we entered this financially strong the challenge is what happens in the fall as, as mary said and we're, we're looking at some really interesting um, ideas for the fall so we typically start school in mid-August. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's likely that we will push that start back to after Labor Day just to give us some breathing room to get past this, this immediate crisis. Mm -hmm. It's pretty clear to us that um, the virus will be around in the fall and that given the lack of testing, we're gonna have students and you know come back to campus when, when it is when they can come back and some of them are gonna um, well, some of them will have the virus, but they're, you know, asymptomatically. Mm -hmm. And so we're, we're at the process of, it, of sort of asking faculty to think about um, even when students come back to campus and we're, again, teaching face-to-face, -face, how do we um, social distance in a class? So it may be that if you have a class on Tuesday and Thursday, you have half the students in that classroom on Tuesday, the other half online and then you switch that out Thursday so everybody is getting a face-to-face -face experience but um, but not crowded into a classroom so it's um, it will change things I think until 
there's universal testing and until there's a vaccine, mm -hmm. I think we're going to be operating differently. And I, I heard on the on NPR the other day, which was interesting to me, that the the quickest we've ever ever put a vaccine um, into the market is was four years. Mm -hmm. So if you just assume we somehow are able to cut that in half, you know, we're we're you know we're not going to have a vaccine in the fall. We're not likely to have one in the spring. So we're going to be operating in a different mode, um, I think, for some time. This is a good time now to take a break. Thank you, Dr. Shaw. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Dr. Mary Schmidt-Campbell, president of Spelman College, and Dr. Larry Shaw, president of Oglethorpe University. And we're talking about how this coronavirus pandemic is not only affecting this current academic year, but in terms of long term for higher education. I want to go back to something that President Campbell talked about, which was she said, if we don't have a residential life, you know, on the campus. And we all know that part of the college experience is that campus experience, that student body experience. President Campbell, how concerning is it for you that maybe that will change? And students may say, well, you know what, if Spelman's mostly online learning, that takes away that experience that I've always wanted. The on-campus experience and residential life is, is um, designed specifically to be part of the learning experience. Mm -hmm. Whether it's an HBCU or whether it's a, a majority-serving institution or, or whatever, it, it, the whole nature of, of residential life is structured to make all parts of it part of the academic, uh, intellectual, and social life of the college. Um, when I, I had a conversation with a small, I've been having conversation with small groups of students, and uh, in what with one of them, they said, you know, when I was at college, I was learning how to be independent. I, I had started to grow. I was, I, I, I was away from my home making decisions for myself. And now all of a sudden I'm snatched back at home. And so they're, they're very conscious of the fact that the, the process of going away from home is part of grow, is part of their coming of age, mm -hmm. right? So I couldn't agree more that um, it, it is, it's really vital. At the same time, I think we have to uh, let the facts and science guide us and let, let good public health practice guide us in our decision making. Uh, because we also don't want to bring students back to a situation where we're essentially a, you know, a, 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 dorm, a residence hall is the equivalent of a cruise ship, right? Mm -hmm. If you've got 300 students housed in uh, a, a residence hall, you've got a density and uh, you've got, it's it almost impossible to exercise the kind of physical distancing that's required. So I think we have to be very measured and um, we're, we're hoping that, uh, I, I think as Larry has said, you know, that we may be able to make some kind of mix, some hybrid model, uh, some way for us to uh, maybe start late and, you know, but, but right now we're looking at at least four different models mm -hmm. of how we might start the, the campus. But realistically, for the health of everyone, we have to consider what would it be if we could not come back to campus at all. If all of a sudden the virus and it's raging and it's just impossible for us to do that. President Shaw, you will not be the president and when school returned as a president through your lens. Could the student body experience forever be changed because of this pandemic? So, we, you know, we have every expectation that... Um, we will be open in the fall, whether that's, you know, early September or late September, um, not entirely clear yet. If you look at our, um, you know, you read in the news that students are thinking about not taking a year off or schools should expect a 20% drop in enrollment. If you, if you look at our registration numbers, returning students, if you look at our 
uh, numbers for our, our first year students, entering students, they're, they're both setting records. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty clear to me that students want to come back. It's also, I think, pretty clear to me that um, things will will be open um, come fall. Or, you know, the governor's open, trying to open up some things now. But I think by fall, things will be open. So I think the, the, the challenge is going to be um, how do you keep your faculty, staff, and students as, as, as safe as you can? Mm -hmm. um, uh, by looking at again different different models, um, you know we have one dining hall, so we're likely to you know open up multiple places where students can can eat, so they're not mm -hmm. you know sitting close close to each other and doing some interesting things with classes. So I, you know I, I will we'll be open in the fall. I had no doubt about that, um, and it'll look a little it'll look a little different, but I think it it will still largely be a um, a residential experience, although maybe, maybe a bit of a different one. I'm curious, has either of the institutions, are y'all been applying for any type of funding? Is there any funding out there and either the stimulus package that uh, either Spelman or Oglethorpe will be able to receive some funds? So I'm glad you asked about that. <laughs> we've all, we've all uh, received the amounts that were going to be allocated through the CARE Act, and half of that has to go to student emergency funds. And then we've got some guidance on um, how the other half can be used. But there are several other buckets of funds that are still um, outstanding. And one is through the state. Uh, and so the governor, uh, Governor Kim, uh, like all governors around the country, has uh, received an allocation for higher education. So we're uh, waiting to see um, how he plans to allocate those funds. Um, for HBCUs, uh, we understand that there's also an additional allocation for HBCUs. Mm -hmm. And so we're also waiting to uh, hear about that. And then I, I believe there's a package of loans that's available as well. So we're still sorting through um, what the stimulus will, uh, what resources the stimulus will give us um, as we move forward. President Shaw? Yeah, it's the same. I mean, this, the, uh, the legislation got rolled out very quickly and um, uh, the regulations, the guide to distribution of money seem to be changing on a daily basis. And yesterday there was a whole new directions that came out. One of the ones that I, I found most disturbing so there's this pot of funds to be distributed, emergency funds to be distributed directly to students. Mm -hmm. We got our, we, we got that money yesterday, but with the guidelines that um, it could only go to certain of your students. Um, and they specifically, we have a very significant population of, of dreamers on campus, mm -hmm. uh, and they specifically excluded dreamers from getting any of those funds, which I I, I found astonishing. So. Um, so what can you do for those students? Well, there's there, best like best we know at this point. There's there's no federal money, and I haven't seen any state money that's available to those students. Um, so if we're going to do that, we'll have we would have to do it out of our out of our own funds, which is something that we're looking at. But um, yeah, I think it was you know I appreciated the intent behind um, getting getting some of this legislation passed so quickly, but it. Um, what what I think suffered in the in the meantime was there was sort of wasn't entirely um, thought through. And you see this with the, with the, the SBA loans, where um, the recipients of some of those loans are not particularly who, who people thought were going to get them. So hopefully that all that all get sorted out. But um, uh, and, and again, we've not heard anything from the state. So mm -hmm. I have to say we're, we will. I think we'll we'll be fine. Our students will be fine. The fall is the big question, um, and uh, I saw today the CDC, you know, suggesting there's going to be another significant wave in the middle of the winter, and mm -hmm. um, uh, mm. so I think we need to be prepared to be disrupted again. President, to your knowledge, any of your faculty or staff or anyone on the has anyone tested positive for the virus? Have you lost anyone? I have. I. I. I don't know. And I'm. I'm putting this in. In this way, um, very deliberately. I don't know of anyone who has either tested positive or uh, has come down with the the illness. I do know of some of our students who have 
relatives who are ill, and I just learned of uh, a student who lost her mother uh, yesterday. So, uh, um, and I think all of us uh, in our communities, in our various communities, all uh, frankly, all over the country, know of someone by now who's either been uh, been touched by this or felled by it. So. I think it feels, uh, we all feel that it's encroaching to some extent or another. And I would say the same. We, we, um, uh, we've had a staff member who lost her mother. Um, my five-year-old grandson was in the hospital for a week with pneumonia. Um, so it's, uh, but we have not, we did, when we sent all our students home, we, had a, we did have a student who, um, was flying home and, and, and actually passed on the airplane, um, not virus related, but um, we were we held a a virtual Zoom memorial service for her, which was beautiful. Currently, there are no students at all on either of your campuses. We have four. Mm-hmm. Um, we had three, but I think we had we had, we had a set of parents that sent one back to us, so we've got four at the moment. We actually have about forty. Um, uh, several of those are international students, and the uh, remaining students are students who um, just, for one reason or another, did not have an, an option uh, to go home in the middle of the semester. Mm. Um, we are now making arrangements for everyone to be off campus during the summer. We are not going to house any students at all on uh, the campus during the summer. President Campbell, you said about 40. How are you all able to help those students with some of their basic needs? And is there a way that the community can help? So thank you. I really do appreciate that that uh, you're recognizing that. Uh, in fact, our faculty um, has uh, stepped up very early on and conducted a really great, very robust campaign so that faculty and staff um, have, uh, over the past few weeks, been uh, making gift baskets, which we have uh, forwarded to them. Alumni have participated. Uh, we have, um, uh, as many campuses do, we've had an emergency fund, which uh, to which we had a huge response. We had 830 donors in it, in you know, in a matter of days, and uh, so we've been able to uh, provide students with emergency funds. Um, our dining hall is open. We have a dining hall in that dorm, in that residence hall, which is open. That specifically serves those students. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they have access to telehealth, to counseling, and of course, all of our uh, technology infrastructure so they can continue their coursework. Uh, you know, our public safety is on campus. We, our mail center is still open. So we're, we're not, our campus is not closed mm-hmm. by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and uh, so the students there are still uh, receiving uh, not only their instruction, but they are being supported by uh, by uh, services either online or actually in person. And finally, as we wrap up, I know it's tough when you're a senior and you can't wait to put on that cap and gown and walk across the stage. And President Campbell, I have been to so many Spelman graduations. I know that energy. <laughs> I know that was tough when both of y'all had to realize, it's like with so many other, institutions, there won't be a traditional graduation this year for those seniors. What can y'all do for them? So we did a, we, we, we just surveyed our seniors and their parents, gave them a number of options, including a sort of virtual May 9th commencement. But it was very, they all want to walk across the stage. Um, <laughs> this was to be my, this was my last one uh, here. and. Um, so it's disappointing for me as well. But so we're planning a uh, um, a commencement, a sort of a live walk across the stage commencement in the fall, timed with, with parent weekend. And um, so what, one way or another, they're they're gonna we're gonna mail their diplomas out, so they will have them this summer. But they, they will all have a chance to to walk across the stage in their gowns. Uh, President Campbell. That's exactly the same with us. Uh, we haven't set a date, uh, but we are definitely going to do an in person. A commencement. Overwhelmingly, that was the, the sentiment of the graduating class. Uh, we'll probably organize some form of a virtual salute to the seniors. Uh, that's just saying, you reached this milestone. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. See you in the, <laughs> see you at commencement. <laughs> <laughs> 
Dr. Mary Schmidt Campbell, president of Spelman College. I was also joined by Dr. Larry Shaw. For now, president of Oglethorpe University. Congratulations, uh, President Shaw. You are turning a new chapter in your career as yeah, you not, leave. Not, not the way I thought I'd go out, but, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Best of luck to you. Thank you, thank, Rose. Thank you. Be well. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Let's talk about K-12 online learning during this time. Now, with this coronavirus pandemic further widen and education gap that currently exists, and also, what are those socioeconomic barriers that currently present challenges to online learning, not only for students, but educators? And now apply this to rural communities. From a lack of connectivity to a lack of funding, we've had this discussion many times on this program. You have students who are in the education system who have challenges, and it oftentimes costs more to educate those students. And at the same time, rural communities have a smaller tax base, which means they're not getting the same funding they would need to educate students who are oftentimes a little bit more um, needy in terms of what they need to perform. So those students who go home without access to internet and cannot do some of their classwork and some of the research that's necessary, there's a disparity there. There's a disparity between those children who have access to the internet at home and those who do not. Now that was Dina Perry, Executive Director of Broadband at the Georgia Department of Community Affairs. We also heard from Robert Gaines, Director of Communications for the Georgia Partnership for Excellence in Education. Now, under the CARES Act, President Trump's $2 trillion stimulus package, it actually allocates $25 million for distance learning for students in rural districts. But is this enough? Is it really just about money? And what effect will all of this have on students and education in the long term? Well, joining me now to discuss all of this about what to do, what we can do to help rural school districts, we have Dr. Broen Reagan Martin, Superintendent of the Early County Board of Education in Southwest Georgia, and Dana Rickman, Vice President of the Georgia Partnership for Excellence in Education. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having us on. Let's begin with you know, before the pandemic. We had always talked about these barriers and these challenges to the rural community, to school districts uh, in particular. And now the conversation is about that's going to further widen an achievement gap for those students. Well, I will say definitely uh, we are seeing disparity um, in our student population. We have, uh, you know, we're in a very rural area. We have areas in our county that are even more rural than others. And Mm -hmm. a lot of our students do not have internet access. So even though they may have devices, they don't have access to the internet in some of the areas in our county. And so they're not able to participate in the online learning that is going on. So even prior to this pandemic with now everyone's having to shift to online learning, in your part of Georgia, this was already a challenge just because of connectivity issues. Absolutely. Mm. And, you know, Rose, uh, connectivity, as you mentioned, and, you know, having broadband access, that's not the end of the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one of those things that it's uh, necessary, but it's certainly not sufficient or the other way around. Um, but I mean, that, that's your first building block uh, where you have to have internet connection. But beyond that, we're talking about the availability of high quality instructional materials, uh, the resources within the home to fully utilize them. And so if you're looking at it from a statewide level, as you mentioned, we're already working from sort of a inequality 
deficit where you had systems that were sort of already up and running, especially in the more metro areas, the ones that were already more connected, a little more fluent, where online learning, virtual classes, online assignments were more typical. And so they were able to make that switch mm -hmm. a little easier. I mean, this is all relative, of course, but a little easier to sort of, you know, distance learning from the home where we had other districts that were not in that area at all. And so the startup cost of that uh, is huge. And so just the ability it's not just flipping a switch to suddenly everything is online mm -hmm. um and so the the ramp up costs the getting all the materials together assuming students and families even have the connection to do the work uh which is not true and so there's levels of problems here right now i was going to agree with dana and say we are not a one-to-one -one district meaning not all of our students have devices we um, do have uh, what we call our Google project teachers. And so we have teachers in our system who have uh, Chromebooks, but they're classroom set. So they have carts of Chromebooks. Um, so those teachers are prepared with the distance learning, but we do not issue devices to every student. Then we have other teachers who are not a part of the project, some either who are not interested in the distance learning at this time or the, uh, the Chromebooks and the Google Classroom project um, for whatever reason. So those teachers are struggling more with the online learning. We're having paper packets go home. So, yeah, there are many layers, as Dana said. Well, Superintendent Reagan Martin, that was my next question. I was going to ask, how are you all currently able to do this in Early County? Right. It's a combination. So the ones who have had the Google Classroom project for those students who do have Internet access and who do have devices, they are doing just amazing things. They're very innovative and creative and they're doing Zooms with their students and having all sorts of online projects going on. But for our other teachers or other students who either were not Google Classroom teachers or the students who do not have the connectivity that they need, they are trying to figure out how to do these paper packets by themselves. And if they don't have parents who are helping them at home, it's been a, a challenge for sure. I want to ask you one more follow-up question. For our listeners who may not be familiar with Early County, uh, sort of paint the picture. Give us the demographics of this part of Georgia. This is in southwest Georgia? Yes, we are in southwest Georgia. We're right next to Alabama. So we're right on the border of Alabama, not too far from Florida. So right above Seminole County um, that borders Florida, um, about 60 to 70 miles south of Columbus, uh, so down in the corner. And uh, our student population is 70% African-American and just rural, um, not much industry, a lot of agriculture. Uh, so we are surrounded with our peanut fields and our dirt roads and our pine trees down here. You're that, not far from Doherty County, are you? In the Albany mm -hmm. area that's had the, that is one of the big mm -hmm. epicenters? That's exactly right. And if you look at the map, you'll see that we are that high concentration area along with Darty County, Randolph County, Early County, we're down there in that corner that is uh, struggling with high numbers of the virus. Mm -hmm. And that of course compounds a whole nother set of issues for that community. The voices you hear, we have Dr. Broin Reagan Martin, superintendent of the Early County Board of Education. That's in Southwest Georgia, she just said. And Dana Rickman, vice president at the Georgia Partnership for Excellence in Education. I feel like this is a good time to shift to solutions, but we still have to, I think for our listeners, bring home the severity of this. And, and Dr. Rickman, when you hear what the superintendent just said about those challenges, this is not lost on you and, and what no, you all do at it, your agency. It is, it is very sobering. And I, you know, I don't want to be too, too negative or too, you know, too down for, for our listening audience, but this is this is a real crisis. This is something we know, you know, the you know, the Georgia partnership is really rooted in research and best practices and the stuff that we've looked at. Like we know the students that lost just a semester of schooling after Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. It took them more than two years to catch up from that lost learning time. And that was just a single semester. And many of those students were actually able to go to schools in other areas. They left and went to Houston or Baton Rouge or wherever. And and so we're looking at really an unprecedented uh, situation of loss of learning time. 
I think though um, there is some opportunities here that could present us with some really good opportunities mm -hmm. to really think more innovatively and really almost redesign how we deliver education. You know, nothing like a crisis to really focus an issue. And we've had these equity issues in Georgia and across the nation for a really long time. And a lot of students are, have not been served well, uh, despite really heroic efforts by our, our teachers and our educators. And so it's giving us an opportunity to really think about how do we deliver instruction differently how do we think about reaching those hardest to reach students? Mm -hmm. What are some alternative learning plans? And then most importantly, what are the resources that will be needed uh, to support this at a statewide level? And so you get the same kind of quality of access that you would in Metro Atlanta, also down in you know, Grady County and Early County and, and across the entire state. And so we're really looking at this as an opportunity to make some significant positive changes in how we deliver education for our students. It's gonna, but it's going to be a hard shift. Well, and speaking of a hard shift, because that sounds great moving forward in the future, but when we talk about this, this current generation, those kids right now, the current K-12 through learners right now, and Superintendent, when you think about when the school year starts in the fall, and, and hopefully we'll be back to some sense of a normal traditional school setting for the kids, how concerning, how concerning is it for you that they will be, a percentage, maybe behind already? Absolutely. It's a huge concern for us. Um, when I've talked to superintendents around the state, you know, that's one of our biggest concerns in areas like ours, uh, that instructional gap that is going to exist for those students who have had very little instruction if they haven't had internet access. And yeah, they may be able to get a paper packet, but it's nothing like having a teacher in the classroom. So we're trying to figure out, you know, already, of course, we're looking towards next year. What is that going to look like? Trying to figure out if we're going to have to uh, have a core period at the beginning of the year that's just going to be a catch up time for some of our students mm. to try to get them caught up uh, with this loss of learning. Is that the best approach you think if you're able to determine that with some of these students who have lost a lot in terms of, of learning? Is this the best approach then when they come back in the fall that it will be just about catching up? Not for all of them, obviously, but for some? Sure, not for all of them. Well, you know, there's a possibility of maybe an earlier um, session if we could do something in the summer, but we just, right now, we don't know that we can plan for that. So we're waiting to see how circumstances change. And if things are safe, we might be able to bring kids back for like a summer mester, mini mester before school starts. Dr. Rickman, let me ask you this. Is this simply just about having more money for these rural school districts? Once you, you mentioned all these innovative ways that you all will look at, but then as we all know, when it comes to implementing anything new as it relates to education, funding is always an issue. I mean, we could spend another segment talking about no child left behind, but a big issue was that there was no funding for the program after it was passed. Yeah, I, I, I do think it's going to take some significant resources, but I don't think the answer is simply more money. Um, I think it, it, it has to be how do we really highlight what is needed and how do we resource what is needed. And so, you know, in the more immediate need, thinking about like this summer, you know, are there ways, keeping in mind the uncertainty of can we actually get together in person sort of thing? But, you know, is there a way to, you know, support some summer learning programs and bridge programs over the summer to help get kids get caught up? And can that not just fall on the school system? They're in the metro area, but not so much in the rural areas. Mm -hmm. You know, can we utilize um, like summer programs? How do we align summer support programs really in line with what the school needs? Out in the rural area, 4-H could be a huge supplement Mm -hmm. to what the schools are trying to do. And so it's going to take more than just telling school systems um, you need to ramp up and ramp up quickly. It's going to take you know, community investment, uh, community organization support, private public dollars. Mm -hmm. But the, the trick is really figuring out what are those most needed critical things. And a lot of them are going to be around um, almost... Uh, this, the emotional mental health of the families and the teachers. Mm -hmm. I mean, especially in areas like where Dr. Reagan Martin is, you're going to have a lot of post-traumatic stress, mm -hmm. a lot of mental health 
issues as these families are going through quite a bit of trauma and the teachers too. Mm -hmm. And so all of that trauma is going to be coming back into the classroom. And that really affects learning, even if you had the perfect learning system you know, laid out. And so what are those mental health resources that need to be in place? So it's really about the right resources targeted where they need to be. And especially outside of metro area where there aren't a lot of summer learning programs or supplemental programs that could be aligned with school system needs and goals. How do we prop those up? Those wraparound services that we yes, hear so exactly, much about here in the, mm-hmm. in the urban areas and, and those non-academic barriers to student success. And, mm-hmm. and so, Superintendent Martin, when we also think about school-to-work pathways, because we have a lot of seniors, if there is a, another source of school-to-work pathway that they can access. Uh, that is definitely an issue, and I will say that the schools, of course, have been instrumental in helping those students uh, with that pathway from school to work. Uh, we have a work-based learning program. Uh, Dr. Shanice Richardson is our work-based learning coordinator and our CTAE director. And you know she works closely with those students and trying to create that pathway for them. And with us not being in school, they just don't have that adult uh, to help them figure out what the next steps are. And of course, with businesses being closed, mm-hmm. that's just another barrier. They don't know what to do. So right now, they're just at home and um, waiting for some direction. Yeah, you know, that's one of those things that there's there, and there's so many unfortunate timings. There's never a good time for a global pandemic, obviously, but mm-hmm. Georgia had been really making a lot of strides and and doing really a sort of a, a national leader around these work-based learning pathways, our um, college and career tech programs, and they're they're really, really good in, in helping kids transition into post-secondary, either a technical school or, or into the into the work environment. But most of them um, are really based on hands-on learning, apprenticeship programs, partnerships with businesses, all of these sorts of things that require you know in-person contact. And so from a long-term planning perspective, what does it mean if over the next you know 18 months our ability to come together will be you know, probably interrupted. And mm-hmm. so how do we keep or thinking of just the workforce pipeline, uh, which really affect economic growth, not just because the economy shut down right now, but over the next two to three years, these interruptions and in training our next set of workers, uh, it's gonna have some really long-term impacts. And so we need to quickly kind of figure out how do we keep these things going in a virtual way? You know, can you train virtual welding? Yeah, Maybe. I don't know. Uh, at some point, you probably need to do some actual <laughs> welding. Um, and so these are some questions that, you know, in the state level, we're really trying to figure out uh, quickly to keep the, the solid programs that we have going. As we wrap up, what comes out of this? What lessons will be learned? And so the question for you all as educators, what lessons will be learned coming out of this pandemic in terms of not only just how we educate, particularly K through 12, uh, public education in, in this nation, but also for our educators. How do we move forward after all of this? I will say um, that our community is very close knit. And one of the benefits of a small community is that we all pitch in and help each other the best we can. Um, That's one of the benefits that has come out of this, that we all reach out and if somebody needs meals, we try to provide meals. If somebody needs groceries, we go buy groceries, Uh, but It has definitely given us um, a clear idea that there is a wide gap between some of our haves and our have-nots, that there are a lot of kids who don't have, whether it's just connectivity, and that is a huge thing. Mm -hmm. And maybe we didn't think it was so huge before, but now all of a sudden there is that glaring view on the disparity Uh, between what kids have access to and what other kids don't. Dr. Rickman. Yeah, I I would agree with that. I think the crisis has certainly highlighted the problems that us in the education community have been talking about for a long time, especially this access, this equity access and this access to opportunity. Um, But I think it's put a really glaring spotlight on how detrimental it is and how it really needs to be addressed for the, the good of the whole state. I think the one of the good things that have come out of this is that for people who are not in education, they 
have a now a much better understanding of the role the public education system plays in the daily lives of their community, not just educating the children, which obviously is their primary role, mm -hmm. but that the you know, the K-12 system in particular and the early care system in particular has really over the years taken on the roles of, you know, community collaborator. And they look after the health and wellness of the families and the students. And to the extent that these, that the education system does so much more than just education, I think this is becoming much more obvious to people who are not in it every day. Mm -hmm. And so I think that appreciation, uh, if we can learn anything, is how to keep that going and support the education system so they can keep doing the job that they've always done. Dr. Dana Rickman, Vice President of the Georgia Partnership for Excellence in Education. Also, Dr. Broen Reagan-Martin, Superintendent of the Early County Board of Education in Southwest Georgia. And we've been talking about rural school districts. Thank you both for taking the time of a very important and critical conversation right now. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed it. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of the day's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.